Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. one and all and welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm your host, Joe Haddo, and wherever you are in the world, I hope you're keeping safe and well and finding some time and headspace to read. In this uh, strange old time that we're experiencing, more and more people are turning to books and to podcasts. So if you have a bookish friend or any friend who you think might enjoy our ramblings, then please do share the love and tell them about Book Off. You can find us on Spotify, Acast, iTunes and all other major podcast platforms and at our socials at Off. But that's enough of that. On to today's episode, which features two debut authors whose novels are the talk of the town and indeed across the pond at the moment. My first guest has been a member of two theatre companies and worked as a voice actor. He's currently studying an MA in Black British Writing and his first novel, Rainbow Milk, is just about to be published. Welcome to the podcast, Paul Mendez. Hello and thank you. I've got a great little... Um, name droppy or actually place droppy anecdote about the last time I think I saw you and I'm going to throw that in in just a moment but first I've got to Mm -hmm. tell you that also joining us is a writer who studied Victorian literature at Oxford and who has lived all over the world including Hong Kong, Singapore and Florence. Her debut novel Exciting Times has just been published. Hello and welcome Nisha Dolan. Hi. Lovely to have you both with us. And Nisha, you and I uh, haven't met personally, but this is a very lovely thing to be able to talk to you today. But I wanted to drop this in at the very top to say that I think I think the last time that Paul and I met was at Buckingham Palace. Yes, I think it was. Or, yes. or it was maybe maybe the maybe we met once since then. But I uh, I quite like thinking of that as the last time because it sounds. No, I better. think let's go with that one. <laughs> yes, because uh, we were there for um, uh, at the Man Booker fiftieth celebrations, I believe. Yes, that was a very fun evening. It certainly was. And Paul, you're joining us from London. Whereabouts are you at the moment? You you tucked up in a in the corner of a house somewhere. I am. I'm in my bedroom in Hampstead, yes. Just sort of blinds up, door shut, boyfriend silenced. So <laughs> <Very> hopefully, <good>. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully and you, we should. <laughs> and you're hoping that lasts. <laughs> we, I, I am hoping that that lasts, yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm from Dublin, um, so I'm just tucked away in suburbia. Right, in, Tucked away in suburbia, sounds nice. Kind of a novella, I think. Got yeah. that vibe. <laughs> 
So in the podcast today, as with every podcast, what we do is a bit later, there's a chance for both of you to pitch to us and all the listeners a book that you absolutely love that we may know or may not know, but that you think we should all read and you're going to tell us why. And we'll do that a little later on. But first, I want to chat about your two brilliant debut novels, which, as I mentioned, are getting some great attention and very much deserved praise. Um, so, Paul, I, I want to start by asking you about Rainbow Milk, if I may, mm-hmm. which yeah. is an exploration of, of race and class and sexuality and it's told through two different characters and timelines so can you tell us a little bit about Norman and Jesse and about both their stories? Yes um, Norman is ostensibly based on um, my grandfather who came to the UK in the late 1950s um, and started to experience um, migraine headaches and blurred vision almost immediately um and it got to the point that he got so sick that he was no longer able to work um so within sort of 3 years of moving here um he had two small children um and my grandmother his wife had to sort of leave her family behind to go to work and that's sort of all i know of my grandfather uh because he um moved back to jamaica um where he later died um so my dad never knew him either so for me, creating the character of Norman was a way of reconnecting with that time and space, uh, with my family history, and sort of fictionalizing what his life may, may have been like back in those days. Um, and then Jesse, my whole reason for writing Rainbow Milk was to sort of explain to myself um, what my sort of life trajectory was um, from being um, a sort of devout Jehovah's Witness at 17 to five years later being a sex worker in London, um, coming from the black country. I've always written sort of diaristically, if you like, journalistically, um, memoiristically. Um, But sort of within the last two or three years, it just sort of came to a point where I had the distance to be able to really sort of create the world around my own story, if you like. Mm. Um, So it became a novel, which was just which I suppose was a little bit more about a young man sort of finding himself and finding love and finding new family um, and notions of fatherhood rather than just me sort of thinking about my own experience. And then I just was able to find a way to tie the two stories together and that's what the, the novel is. Because a lot of people say to debut novelists, especially that have quite strong characters or the the, the novels are centred around one or two characters, they say, oh, you know, is there a lot of you in this novel? And occasionally, debut authors say, yeah, absolutely, because I've had X amount of years and stories and life experience to put in. So it's it's inevitable that some of this is going to come out. But this sounds like it was quite a deliberate decision for you, Paul, to build a character that was around you. Well, I suppose it started out as a memoir. um, Mm. And I got in touch with a publisher with a manuscript that was ostensibly a memoir. There was nothing sort of novelistic about it. And it was um, she that gave me the confidence to um, to start writing fiction. I'd never written even as much as a short story before she commissioned me eff- effectively to write this as a novel. So it was a, a real kind of um, whirlwind experience, I guess, um, just finding ways in which I could divorce my own story away from this. And there were several ways in which I was able to do that, one of which was to create the character of Graham, who's Jesse's white adoptive father. Now, my 
parents are both black, both from the Jamaican diaspora, both still happily married. So creating the character of Graham and making him Jesse's father um, really sort of completely changed Jesse's life and made him sort of very, very different from me. So there are ways in which I was able to do things like that to sort of create um, a sort of fictional space in which to still discuss some of the same things that I've been through. Nisha, how much of you do you think is in exciting times? Relatively little. And I think it's one of those things where it's difficult to say that without sounding like I'm making some kind of value judgment about how other people should write, because I really the issue that I take with autobiographical assumptions is when there's disbelief around it. You know, you say once it's all made up and people are like, oh, but is it really? When it's not an interesting way to engage with this kind of book, I think, because it wouldn't change the material that much if it had happened. Yes, I I, I see what you're saying, because I was reading, you know, in your biography about the places that you've lived across the world. I mentioned it earlier, and obviously the story is set in Hong Kong. So you've obviously drawn on a little bit of having spent time there, but it's it's a story, it's a love story, isn't it, of sorts, at its heart, would you say? Yeah, but I think it happens in a very novelistic way. I can't think of anything in my own life that has followed the structure of a three-volume novel that coherently, and <laughs> if I had, you know, lucky me. But <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about um, Ava and, and Julian and Edith? Sure. So Ava is the 22-year-old protagonist who comes out to Hong Kong to teach TEFL out of a lack of anything better to do with herself, really. Julian is a sort of sardonic British male banker, and Edith is a female lawyer who has a more enthusiastic approach to life, I suppose. So (laughs) in as much as there's conflict, it's between those two modes of being, I think. And there's a there's a very wry humour throughout this book. And I, I found the the very short chapters just really great because I, I think I read, in fact, is it on here? I read a brilliant quote that because uh, there's so many on this book. Yes, Dolan's sentences are like a splash of cold water to the face, says Claire Fisher. And uh, Claire is, is right. And after reading it, I thought exactly the same thing. But I wondered, the, the humour and the wit... Is that drawn from some of those Victorian masters that you spent a long time studying? I suppose it has to be because they were such a formative influence for me from such an early age. And obviously, you know, you'd hope I've questioned a lot of the ideas in those novels. But in terms of the structure of the language, I think it really shapes your idea of what sentences look like. And so you can't really help reproducing them. So in that sense, maybe it is autobiographical in a literary sense. It probably wears its heritage. Mm. And Paul, to come back to you, mm-hmm. I was going to ask a, a little bit about your writing and, and perhaps this this question, it makes a little bit more sense to me now after we've talked about the autobiographical nature of the writing. But you you don't seem to sugarcoat any of the scenes in your book because there are graphic sex scenes and there are these horrid acts of racism. And I just wondered, was it important to you to keep the prose quite raw? I mean, I come from a place where, um, you know, I'm from the black country. I'm from uh, a very sort of working class background. I don't sound like it, but I do. And I live in Hampstead now, but I grew up in Dudley. Mm -hmm. Um, And... 
you know, being a sort of black queer Jehovah's Witness or, you know, someone who's coming out of a religious background and sort of coming into a secular um, mindset, um, becoming a sex worker in order to sort of do the worst possible thing I could think of so that I didn't sort of have this sort of moralistic doctrine in my head anymore without breaking the law. I just thought that my own story was the starting point, really, um, in order to sort of engage with writing and with literature. Um, and a lot of the writers I was reading, um, Marcel Proust being the sort of main influence, I suppose, wrote from their own experiences. But the main point wasn't necessarily just their own story or their presence in the book. It was the world around them and how it treated them, how it responded to them. Um, and that's really what I wanted to achieve um, with Rainbow Milk, um, which is why you have in the third section set in 2016, just after the referendum, you have Jesse sort of, you know, thinking, yeah, great, you know, I've, I have a boyfriend, we live together, I've got a steady job, um, but let's go into the English countryside and um, have a good time there. And he finds himself in a, Sussex, in a Suffolk market town, being mm. the only black person there and sort of seeing gollywogs for sale all around him and thinking this is not the England that I thought it was and I thought it was just very very important and that's based on an experience I had and I thought it was very important to to show um in literature which hasn't really been done before um what it is like to be a young black man a young queer black man um who maybe steps out of where he's supposed to be um into different arenas within Britishness uh, and how he has responded to and and what that sort of does to him. Yeah, and I mean that that's amazing to me that um, you went somewhere. It, and was it in two thousand and sixteen you had that experience somewhere where you saw gollywogs? Um, it was actually um, in the summer of twenty eighteen. Um, right. But Jesus. again, <laughs> so even more recently. <sighs> um, I mean, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, a it's, lot of I I did a lot of jimmying about with time. Um, in in the book, where in reality I moved to London in 2004. I had Jesse move to London in 2002 and I used a pop song, a number one single of that time as his sort of almost catalyst yeah. um, to the sort of um, the nowness of, of that period. And a lot of yeah. great pop references, may I say, throughout the book, you know, you can't help but sing along to some of them. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Slightly I was soundtracked much... your own life there, I think. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, I was really inspired by um, Diana Evans's Ordinary People, where, I mean, that whole book is based on um, the sort of structure of John, Le John Legend's Ordinary People album from mm. 2004 which is in itself a concept album about, you know, the process of a relationship through sort of falling in love all the way to breaking up, etc. And it's just full of, like, really amazing references to um, early 2000s R&B music. And I kind of thought, well, I, you know, this gives me permission to, to use music as a catalyst. I've always believed in music anyway as a catalyst to memory. It really helps to access sort of early memories when you hear a song from your childhood. It really puts mm. you back in that place. It's a real anchor. Um, so it was, it was part of my writing process to, to, to listen to a lot of music and to respond to it. Um, and I couldn't sort of leave that out of the book. Uh, Nish, do you use music either when you're writing or do you prefer to write in silence? Or, and do you use it as a sort of memory thing as well, like Paul? I use it when the background is too distracting, but I can't listen to anything but words because then um, the 
monologue in my own head just gets drowned out and I get too distracted <laughs> and I don't really use it psychologically I so I think for me it's more of a just um insulating myself as best I can when I need to be in control of the background hourly so living where I live um people seem to have their houses done up sort of every year apparently so there's always the sound of a circular saw or something. So, you know, to escape from that, sometimes you just need to plug in and play music that you're very, very familiar with that sort of sets an atmosphere, that sets a tone that you don't need to actually actively listen to, but you can just hear effectively. And so you're in control of the situation yeah. rather than having sort of stuff interrupt you constantly that you're not in control of. Yeah, and I find it a lot easier to deal with a high volume that's uniform than yes, silence exactly. with the odd encroaching sound. Like if someone drops a pen or something, it's like, shut up. I know. But somehow I can have really loud music and that's fine. <laughs> do you find you write you write the best at home, Nisha, do you? Or do you go out somewhere specific and make a make an actual day of it? Well, I, I used to like cafes, but alas, oh, um, not anymore. one of the many things that has befallen humanity, yeah. Um, so I've had to make do with um, being at home now, which is weird because I don't know what role the cafes served exactly, except <laughs> that if you've gone and bought this coffee so that you can write, um, you then have to justify that purchase post hoc by writing so i need to find something else that's like costly and slightly inconvenient that then puts me in a situation where i have to write i guess and i haven't yet but we'll get there um it's interesting that you mentioned going to a cafe and mentioned that this time that we're in obviously now it's all a bit um strange and weird and we're staying indoors and paul i remember reading at the beginning of the year i think it was you were in the Guardian's debut authors to watch for the year, which which must have been pretty exciting for you. Um, but in that in that short interview that they did with you, I think you you said something about needing boringness to write. You didn't want anything going on to be able to concentrate. So does does lockdown mean that that you're now able to write a lot, or is that not really how it's working? Oh, well, good question. Um, I do need boringness to write, and I'm very privileged in that I sit and write full-time now and read full-time. I'm studying, um, so books and writing are actually my life. Um, but I find this period strangely inhibiting in a way. I don't know. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I've just written a short story, so it can't be that bad. But... Um, it has been very difficult to concentrate, I think, because, I don't know, I just constantly need to be kept abreast of what's going on, I suppose, outside, um, yeah. which I wouldn't necessarily have been so worried about before. Um, I think so a lot my, of people are feeling the same. Yeah, I think so. My level of intensity um, is not what it was. Um, I can't quite concentrate enough. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, you know, this is time for all of us to you know, have our own health and well-being and our loved one's health and well-being as, as our number one priority, uh, more so than before. Mm. Um, something that Damien Barr said in an article, all these people who are saying, you know, Shakespeare wrote King Lear um, during quarantine from the plague and, you know, you need to have come out of this um, uh, lockdown period with a new language or with a you know better body or having lost weight or picked up a new career skill or something. 
And Damien Barr just said, well, you know, I'm just eating crisps and getting through it, actually. So, <laughs> and I think that's a really good attitude to have. You know, I don't it is, need yeah. to be under pressure from anybody um, outside during this period. I just need to sort of look after myself. And in fact, I did um, suffer with the virus sort of three weeks ago. Um, and it's left me feeling quite sort of weak. So, like, I just need to sort of come back from that and feel like myself again before I do anything. Mm. Gosh, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you're all right. Glad you got through it. Thank you. Yeah, it was rough, but, you know, I, th- I think compared to some people, I sort of got off quite lightly, to be honest. Yeah. But I agree with um, Damien uh, on most things, probably, but certainly on that. And there is, abs- I'll tell you this now, there's absolutely no chance of me emerging with a better body, the amount of beer and <laughs> wine that I'm consuming. <laughs> well, all I've done is bake. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> Like, I'm just sitting here getting fatter and fatter, but I don't care. <laughs> Nisha, are you finding this a, a similar thing in terms of the creativity or is it is it working for you, this isolation? Well, because because it's happened to be around publication, I, I'm probably the only person in the universe who's complaining about feeling socially overwhelmed right now. But <laughs> I, like, because I'm autistic, so... The feeling that non-autistic or holistic people get after maybe a week of going out every night, like some days, that's how I feel after one phone call. Mm. So all the publicity stuff that's still happening, I'm still just like my brain feels like wasps. So to be honest, (laughs) I'm not sure how I would have coped if the campaign had gone ahead as planned, because as it is right now, I'm just like, I mean, no shade. Like you guys are great. Loads of the people I'm talking to are great, but it's just so much talking for me, you know? <laughs> if you're able to write full time, your book is going to be enough of an, an enterprise that you have to do all that stuff. But the alternative of not having a book deal that allows you to write full time means that you'd instead of something else that was taking away from writing, which would be whatever else you were doing to support yourself. So I suppose it's always that trade off. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to write full time if I didn't get the book deal in the first place. So um, and then, you know, you obviously have to sort of spend enough time writing and enough sort of an investment in in intensity to be able to sort of get the book deal in the first place. But I think it is what it is. You know, it's unfortunate that my launch has happened at this time or that this time has happened at the same time as my launch. But it does give me a chance to actually just sort of go back to, to my desk and write rather than, as you say, sort of spend so much time talking about the first book. And, in, in, you know, I had lots of festivals and events booked. Nisha, you and I um, had something booked together for tonight, actually, wasn't it? The, the Waterstones event. Um, yeah. And it's, it's terribly sad that that's not happening. But social media does mean that there are other ways that we can communicate with readers, my publisher, and I'm sure yours as well, Nisha, are very sort of um, proactive in terms of uh, finding new ways to communicate and new ways to get the book out to its readership. So um, it's no biggie. And it does, like I say, mean that I can go back to my desk and and be writing and reading. Before we get to the book off, which is where each of you is going to tell us about a book that you absolutely love, I wanted to ask two things. Uh, One for each of you. Firstly, it's not really a question as much as I just want to point out, Nisha, that um, I mentioned earlier this quote by Claire Fisher on the back of your book, but you can't help notice at the very top on the front the old Hilary Mantel quote there as well, which must have been... uh, (laughs) Pretty uh, a pretty great moment for you to to have her not only have read the book but have 
commented on the cover. Yeah, I, it was completely <laughs> a, a surprise as well. I had no idea that she'd even received a copy and then she comes out supporting it. So that was <laughs> really nice. And talking of the publishing community, I just wanted to take a moment, Paul, to talk about dialogue books yes. who are doing great things in the world of publishing have been going for maybe three years two and a half years something like that three years um for anyone who doesn't know about this imprint perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about them and how you came to get your deal with them sure um so charmaine lovegrove uh is an incredible reader and books person. Um, she started out as a bookseller at Foils at the age of 18 um, and then moved to Berlin and started her own bookshop uh, called Dialogue Books. And it was sort of, she became a sort of literary consultant. So she had sort of two and a half thousand books or so uh, in the shop. And people would sort of come in and say, oh, I'm looking to read something like this. Uh, and she'd read all the books there and she would be able to sort of recommend um, something. So it was almost like a, a, a small library, in fact, mm. and sort of moved on from there to sort of become literary editor of Elle um, and did a books pod podcast with Monocle. So when Little Brown were looking for someone to head up their new sort of more diverse imprint, she was their sort of number one person on the list. So she became the publisher at Dialogue Books and... I'd been friends with her for about five years. Well, we had sort of closer mutual friends, but we'd sort of met a couple of times. And she'd always expressed an interest in reading my work. Um, so when I found out that she was um, going to be heading up dialogue books, um, I sent her my work um, on her first day in the job. She passed it on to Dominic Wakeford, who um, was then an editor at Little Brown, who had the sort of remit to sort of purchase a couple of books a year for dialogue books. Uh, and it was him who read the original manuscript, which I, as I said earlier, was sort of more of a memoir. Yeah. Um, and then they um, came together and offered me uh, a book deal based on um, the idea that I would turn this into a novel. And since then, I mean, it's taken me a bit longer than I expected to to finish Rainbow Milk. So I'm probably a year behind in the schedule. But it's incredible what's been achieved already. Even just this morning, Yvonne Battlefelton has been shortlisted for the Jalak Prize. She was also on the Women's Prize long list. Yeah. Um, Irena Sinakoji was on the Jalak Prize long list as well. The Desmond Elliott Prize has two dialogue books by Alex Allison and Okechukwu and Zalu on it. And so, yeah, I think we're doing extremely well. We're making a big noise and we're one of several imprints along with... Jacaranda books, hashtag murky books uh, as well, um, who are sort of making a big noise and putting underrepresented voices at the very forefront of um, the literary discourse in this country. Mm, which is great to hear. And yes, like you say, it's uh, it's so... It's so brilliant to see dialogue doing so well, to see Murky doing such brilliant and brave things. And um, I just wanted to take a moment there for, for dialogue because I think they're doing Thank great you. Things. That's really, really good. And yeah, I think things are changing a little bit. I think still the publishing industry itself, you know, the officers need to diversify a little more so that mm, they've got sure. people in the room making decisions, um, people around the, the sort of board table, if you like. Uh, that's sort of the next stage, really. But um, for where we're at at the moment in terms of connecting with readers, which is the most important thing at the end of the day, um, I think there's a real drive towards um, towards hearing from people like me. 
Um, and let's hope that we can be part of the change that needs to happen in society. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, it's time for the book off now, and this is where, as I've said. Each of you gets three minutes on the clock to tell us about a book that you absolutely love. This book can be anything. It can be fiction, non-fiction, poetry, a play. Uh, in the past, we've had graphic novels, we've had comics. Um, in, in fact, I think Bryony Gordon, when she was on, brought um, the AA good book in, the Alcoholics Anonymous good book as a book that she wanted to recommend. So we have we have seen it all here on Book Off. Um, so we're going to decide who goes first and second. We're going to decide who is going to have the bell and the horn. But first, before we do any of that, let's just find out which books you're bringing to the table. So Nisha, what book are you going to talk about today? Um, I've chosen Asleep by Banana Yoshimoto. It's kind of a novel, kind of three novellas. Um, written in 1989, translated in 2000. Fantastic. Paul, what are you uh, bringing to the table for the book off? I'm bringing The Vanishing Half by uh, Britt Bennett. Uh, it's her second novel, um, and it's um, being published here in the UK in June, so not out yet. Uh, and I read it earlier this year, and I thought it was terrific. And it's uh, it's also on dialogue as well, isn't it? She's a dialogue I didn't want to draw too much attention to that fact because <laughs> no, but... it looks like I'm being terribly biased. But yes, she is a Libra. <laughs> I wasn't saying it in that way. I was just, I was just, <laughs> I was just doing making the connection. Uh, you can Brilliant. pitch whatever you want. If you think everyone should read it, and that's what this is all about. So um, let's find out who's going to go first or second. I'm going to give you the choice, Nisha. Would you like to have your uh, three minutes first or second after Paul? Oh gosh, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> What if Paul's so brilliant and then I'm just test tumbling? But then what if I say something that... I'm thinking exactly <laughs> I, the same thing. I'll go thing. first. <laughs> She's going to go first. Very good choice. Brilliant. Very good choice. Paul, you get to choose whether you would like to be honked out at the time or if you'd like the uh, school bell. Which would you prefer? Oh, the school bell, just in the memory school of... school bell, like, okay. Just thinking about all of those poor kids who are missing school right now. 
<laughs> yes, okay, well, that's that's what that will be for. Which means, Nisha, you have got the uh, bicycle horn. So what I'm going to do is put three minutes on the clock here. You don't have to use all three. So if you finish your magnificent pitch before that time, that's okay. But as we hit three minutes, I'm going to get that horn out and uh, going to stop you, okay? So it's over to you, three minutes on the clock, Nisha, to tell us about Asleep by Banana Yoshimoto. Okay, so... If you were someone who regards my year of rest and relaxation as an ideal pandemic read because of its atmosphere of sleeping in confinement, this is the book for you. It's the stories of three women who use sleep to mediate grief and loss in various ways. So first of all, we got Shibami, who's um, grieving her brother and contemplating his relationship with her cousin. Then we've got Fumi, who's battling an alcohol addiction and um, realising that she loved a woman she was feuding over about a man. And then thirdly, we've got the one in the title, Asleep, about Tedako, who um, starts an affair with a man whose wife is in a coma. So sleep threads through the plots of these. But um, the main reason that I'm gunning for it is just that vibe of being stuck in your own head and the drama that that can acquire when there's not much external stimulation going on. Because sometimes in the absence of comfort, what can make you feel better about a situation like the one that we're in is if you just see texture given to an experience that seems to you quite monotonous. So it's the kind of book that in another circumstance, if you had something very colourful going on around you, you might well think, why do I want to come back to these three Japanese women who are just lost in their own heads, drifting in and out of slumber? But if that's what your reality looks like right now, then it's nice having it acquire a literary sort of quality. And I think as well, there's that growing interest in Japanese and especially Japanese women's writing. And it's really nice to understand a bit more where that's coming from, especially because, um, so Mieko Kawakami, whose um, English translation debut, Rest and Eggs, is out this year, um, has been quite outspoken about the fact that, that the kind of Japanese literature that tends to go down well in Anglophone countries is stuff that plays into that stereotype of the Japanese, as I think she said, odd and mysterious, but harmless. Um, so her book isn't out yet, but I would recommend Asleep as something that deals with a darker um, and more specific experience to kind of ground that a bit more. And it's also just a really propulsive and minimalistic read. If you like your prose to do something in every single word, um, she's a really great writer in that respect. I I have no idea how pitchy that pitch even sounded. I think when I'm told to pitch, I don't change anything about how I talk about books. I just talk about <laughs> the book until I'm allowed to stop. But um, that's my manifesto for why we should read asleep. <laughs> Very good. Very well done. <laughs> that was you brilliant pitch. That space. Um, so you can relax now, Nisha. You can take a breath as we move Amazing. over. I, I will be upstaged, Serena. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Mine's uh, we come to you, Paul. Uh, we've got you. three minutes back on the clock for you to tell us about The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. So The Vanishing Half um, examines the American history of passing. So you've got two identical twin sisters, Stella and Desiree, who grew up in Mallard, which is a small or uncanny uh, black community in Louisiana, 
where everyone's light-skinned, each generation lighter than the one before, quote. So at the age of 16, having witnessed their father's lynching as children, um, the sisters run away from a life in domestic service. Stella works as a secretary, then in turn runs away from her twin sister, Desiree, without a word, after discovering that she can pass as a white woman. So 14 years later, we catch up with them. Um, Desiree is now a single mother to a very dark-skinned daughter, Jude, whose appearance shocks the community when Desiree returns to Mallard, having escaped an abusive marriage. Whereas Stella's married her white boss, who knows nothing of her past and is living an affluent life in the, in the suburbs, hoping that nobody will sort of question um, her race. And so we then see for the sort of rest of the, the body of the book, in plain sight, how two women who are identical twins living in different parts of America in the second half of the 20th century can lead completely different lives and be handed vastly different opportunities based not on their actual skin colour, but on perceptions of their race. And it's left to Jude, Desiree's daughter, and Stella's ostensibly white daughter, Kennedy, to examine the legacies of the twin sisters' decisions. And it's clear to me that in writing this book, Britt Bennett's taken a lot of influence from Toni Morrison, who is a greatly missed author. Um, and so if you're kind of missing Toni Morrison, if you've read all of Toni Morrison's books and you're thinking, where do I go next? I think this is a great way to go. Um, and beginning the story in Mallard, uh, you're reminded of the bottom, the mostly black town in the hills above the fictional town of Medallion, where uh, Morrison set her second novel, Sula, in which um, two young teenage girls, Nell and Sula, um, they're not related, but they're strongly attached. They remind you of Stella and Desiree. But after an incident, they drift away from each other and take wildly divergent paths. You've got very snappy dialogue and beautiful descriptions, um, especially in the early parts of the book, that are strongly reminiscent of Tony Morrison's. And, and I read it in between... Um, so I was supposed to be doing um, a literary festival up in, in Huddersfield with my colleague Yvonne Battlefelton, uh, celebrating the life of, and work of Toni Morrison. And I read The Vanishing Half in between Sula and Song of Solomon, and it fit perfectly. It just felt like it was cut from the same cloth. Um, and there's no greater um, compliment to a writer that I can give uh, than that their work reminds one of Toni Morrison because she moves through all these great big subjects like colorism, Jim Crow. <laughs> I just down. wanted to get that Cut down in your prime. <laughs> you know Maggie O'Farrell told me off last week because uh, she said, you're so, you're so cruel with that thing. You know, you don't choose, you don't just let us have a few extra seconds to finish a sentence. I said, nope, three minutes on the, on the nose. And I feel very mean for doing it. But you, you, oh, I'll wow. let you finish Where's that Brandon? sentence, Paul. I wanted to hear the end of that. Yeah, but... go on. We'll let you finish it, Paul. Thank you. Um, well, she just deals with these great big subjects like Jim Crow and colorism, um, domestic violence, the American dream, and how that sort of divides people into uh, its own little tyrannical camps. But she sort of writes at this beautifully cosseting and contemplative pace all the way through. And so, yes, I may be biased, but I think it's one of the best novels I've read this year, and it's my pick. Wow. Well, thank you very uh, much for letting uh, me finish. Yeah, that's okay. Um, <laughs> and, and brilliantly done as well, both of those pictures. Um, so you. let's come back to a sleep. You can have a breath now, Paul, and I'll come back to you, Nisha, just to, to pick up on what you said about a sleep, which, as I said, is a novel and indeed a writer. I, I don't know, I have to confess. But everything you were saying 
has made me want to read this book. The fact that you've picked it out because of the time that we're all experiencing now just makes me feel like, yes, this is <laughs> this could be the time to experience not only this author, but this this specific book. And I was taken by the fact you said, you know, it's giving texture to what we're all experiencing and that there's this very sort of minimal prose. And I think that at a time like this, when we are trying to just look after ourselves, both in terms of our our health and well-being, but also our mental health. This might be this sort of slower-paced. Uh, a thinking book might be the way forward. Yeah, I think so. There are some books that you're just not going to be in the right headspace for at a given time. I'm getting what a lot of people get of that pandemic envy of characters doing extremely mundane things that are now completely um, beyond our reach. So it's <laughs> nice to um, feel that someone's sharing a little bit of our confinement. Yeah. And as you were telling us about it, it was reminding me or made me think of, should I say, a book I read very recently called The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa, which is currently on the um, Booker Prize shortlist for the International Prize. And again, I, I, I wondered if you had read that book or her, but it's it's also a, a book that was written back in the 80s originally and has only just recently been translated into English. And again, the experience of reading Ogawa has been for me like a, a very sort of meditative um, experience. And I wondered if you felt the same about reading Yoshimoto. Yeah, um, I haven't read that one of Ogawa's, but I've read others. And it is that similar. It's hard to say because we're reading it in translation, how mediated mm. that experience is. Some of it may well be that because English and Japanese don't have an extremely close syntactic relationship, some of that vagueness may well come about in translation if there are specific ways of structuring sentences in Japanese that we can't accurately recreate and so forth. Whereas translating from English and German, vice versa, might well be a more literistic process, literalistic process. Yeah. So, you know, as a non-fluent Japanese speaker, I almost feel hesitant to comment too much on the language. But in terms of vibe and in terms of a few anecdotal details as opposed to an influx of description, I think that's certainly there. Um, well, it sounds absolutely brilliant. So thank you for bringing it to our attention and for that brilliant pitch as well. And Paul, The Vanishing Half is a book that I have actually read and it's mm -hmm. the only one of Britt Bennett's that I've read, actually. I haven't read her first novel. Hearing you, so as a, it's always interesting hearing someone uh, pitch a novel that you have read or any book that, that, that I have actually read. And I actually got more a lot more out of the book, I think, from just hearing you talk about it there. Um, it's great that we can see how Toni Morrison has influenced Brit's writing, I think. Um, yes. So thank you both um, for, for those. W what, <laughs> what usually happens is... I have to choose a book to take home with us, you know, that, that I think has won the day. But as of last week, and as will continue to be the case in this weird lockdown, isolation, virusness nonsense, um, I'm calling everyone a draw. So it's, it's definitely oh, a draw today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take them, take them both home. Pick up a sleep now in Brits book when it's out. And That's yeah. very true. That's yeah. very exactly. true. Yes, Nisha. Yeah. So get a sleep now because you can by Banana Yoshimoto. And from the 23rd of June, you can, 25th of June, I think it is actually, you can get The Vanishing Half by Brit Bennett. Um, and both 
sound very good. And you can also get two fabulous debut novels, Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendez, which is published, as I said, by Dialogue Books. And it's out on the 23rd of April and Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan, published by Widenfield and Nicholson. And it's out tomorrow if you're listening on Wednesday, the 15th of April, Mm. or it's out now if you're listening from the 16th of April. Um, Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us and chat books and pitch these brilliant novels and for writing these fantastic books and I wish you all the best with them. Thank you very much for having us and congratulations you. on your publication day, Nisha. Thank, congrats, Paul. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank Need you. to get that pre-order in, actually. <laughs> yes, very yes. good point. <laughs> and of course, we should say, because we can't go to bookshops and stand in awe of their magnificent shelves and take our time strolling around and pulling out the spines and having a look. But we can support our local bookshops and our national bookshops by ordering online and most most of them who can are delivering. So um, please do check out these two books and order from your local bookshop or your nearest bookshop because um, I think in these times we need to support anyone who's doing anything in the publishing world don't we it's uh, it's important we do paul nish it's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you thank you so much and do tell everyone about this podcast if you're a fan do go online and subscribe to us and you can rate us on apple Podcasts as well you can leave a nice little review it really helps and spread the word so thank you all and uh, enjoy the rest of your afternoon and the rest of your lockdown you two see you soon thank you very much take care take care bye are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 